I think it was on the Andy Griffith show. I'm not exactly sure. But I remember seeing a story something like this, a young couple, uh, kind of a well-to-do couple from the big city was traveling through Mayberry in their brand new sports car, top-down speeding, and the sheriff, Andy Taylor, pulled them over. They were a bit mouthy, so he brought them back to his little office. And uh, as local sheriff, had written them up, and I think was actually going to put them in that comical jail that they had with two cells. The man, as I recall, wanted to talk to the judge. So Andy opened up a drawer, pulled out a nameplate that said Judge of Mayberry and put it on the front. You're the judge? Yeah, I'm the, you're the sheriff and the judge? Yeah, I'm sheriff and judge. Guy shook his head and said, well, he said, Sheriff, Judge, we, we were just speeding because we we're actually going to this place and we we're planning to be married. And Andy opens up another drawer, pulls out Justice of the Peace, sets it out there and says, I can do that too. <laughs> what do you mean? Do you do everything here? He said, yep, just about everything. And in a little town like Mary, Mayberry, I suppose you might be able to pull it off. Where there's, you know, a couple hundred people, perhaps less. But in a nation of a couple million people, to be sheriff and judge and justice of the peace is an impossible task. Those two people were very frustrated when they found out that the judge and the sheriff and the justice of the peace were all the same person. And we find a similar story in the Old Testament coming out of the book of Exodus and the life of Moses. Where we see Moses a bit worn out and worn down because he is sheriff and justice of the peace and judge and lawgiver and everything else for this nation of Israel, two million strong. Exodus 18, if you have your Bible, let me encourage you to turn there. Bless you. And we read in verse 1 these words. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian. And that word priest also includes chief. He is the head of the Midianite nation, most likely. He is their lawgiver and ruler and judge and sheriff and priest. And he's also the father-in-law of Moses. When he heard of everything God had done for Moses and for the people of Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt, well, he was thrilled. How did word get to him so fast across the desert? Well, there would have been travelers who went from place to place. Maybe Moses even sent a communique to his father-in-law just to keep in touch with the family and let them know what God had done. And I like the way this chapter starts out. The Lord has done this. The Lord brought Israel out. This chapter is very theocentric. And by that I mean God-centered. God is at the center of all that goes on. Everything else revolves around Him. Just like it should be in your life and mine. Our lives ought to be theocentered or Christocentric. With Jesus Christ at the center. He's the hub. 
the driving force that sends through the spokes out to the wheel movement and energy and progress. Everything in our life ought to revolve around Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ. And to die, I get to see Christ. That's gain. Everything in life, everything in death, it's all about Jesus. I see that in Exodus chapter 18. So verse 2 says, After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and the two boys. You say, now when did that happen? Well, the Bible doesn't really tell us. My best guess is it was Exodus chapter 4, verse 24 and 25. Moses was leaving Midian. He had received the call of God to go back to Egypt to deliver the people of God. He was taking Zipporah and the two boys with him. And they were stopped in their tracks by the angel of the Lord. Because they had not done something for their second son that they did for their first son. The ceremony of circumcision. My best guess is Zipporah didn't like it the first time and said, Nope, you're not doing it again. It's a bloody ceremony. I don't want it to happen. It inflicts pain upon my little infant son. I don't want it to happen. And God said, no, it's a sign of the covenant. It must happen. And so there's a quick circumcision ceremony, and Zipporah calls Moses a bridegroom of blood, and I think she's probably a little upset. I don't think he sends her home at that point. Maybe he did. But I do think he realizes that what's going to happen in Egypt is way too dangerous for his wife and his two boys. And so at some point, most likely on that trip, he sends them back to his father-in-law, Jethro. And that's what verse 2 says. His father-in-law, Jethro, received them back and cared for them for that one year and a half or whatever it was that Moses and Aaron were delivering the people of God from Egypt and God was revealing his mighty hand in the ten plagues. And in the crossing of the Red Sea, and now traveling down the shore, all the way to Mount Sinai, God was with them. And Moses probably sent word to his father-in-law, or at least he heard all of this. And now they want to come together and reunite. By the way, the scripture gives us in verse 3, the names of the two boys. The first one, the eldest, was Gershom, and his name means I have become an alien and a foreigner in the land. And the other son, Eliezer, means my father's God was my helper, for he saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. That was when Moses killed the Egyptian and Pharaoh was out to kill Moses, and Moses had to flee to Midian. So he named his sons after two realities in his life. One's rather pessimistic and one's rather optimistic. The first son reminded him of being displaced and alone. He was mourning is what he was when he named that child. But there was a change in the heart of Moses before the second son was born. And now it's a name of hope. The Lord is my helper. He delivered me from Pharaoh before and I've got confidence he will deliver me again. And Moses has this appreciation for his life 
and the way that God has led and the progress that God is making in his life. So we get down to verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with the two boys and Zipporah the wife, came to Moses in the desert. And when he was camped, uh, where Moses was camped, near the mountain of God. Uh, This map gives us some indication of where the people of God have traveled, leaving Ramses in the land of Goshen in Egypt and coming down south. Then they backtracked a little bit, as God told them to, probably crossing the Red Sea in the northern part of the Gulf of Suez, and now coming down the coast, the western coast of the Sinai Peninsula, working their way to places like Mara, where the water was bitter, in the deserts of Shur, the wilderness of Sin, where they received manna from heaven, where they fought the Amalekites at Rephidim near the south, and, and now finally to Mount Sinai. Now there are several different possibilities for the route and several different locations that are espoused, but this is the tra- traditional site at the southern uh, part of the peninsula, and I think it probably is uh, Mount Sinai. This is a picture uh, from an old photograph that was taken, and you see this kind of desert area and then immediately this quick upcropping of rock with deep fissures in it and you can just imagine the cloud of God coming down and fire and lightning as we're going to see in uh, chapter 19 and chapter 20. Here's a uh, more up-to-date picture of that particular mountain. So the people of God left Rephidim and they were making their way to this mountain and somewhere Moses has this wonderful reunion with his family. In fact, this chapter, Exodus 18, divides into two halves. The first half is this reconnecting with his family. His opportunity to recount what God has done for him. And that's exactly what he's going to do. The Bible tells us in verse 7... Moses goes out to meet his father-in-law and he greets him by bowing down and kissing him, the oriental acts of courtesy. Now remember, here are two chiefs, the leaders of their nations, the head of their clans, the head of the Midianites, the head of the Israelites coming together. This is like a presidential summit. They happen to be related, but they go through all the common courtesies and all the All the acts that you would go through as dignitaries come together and meet and establish goodwill with one another. It's kind of odd that Zipporah isn't mentioned. I hope that that doesn't mean that husband and wife were fighting. They hadn't seen each other for a year and a half. I'm sure they were glad to come together again. The scripture just doesn't focus on that. Because it's focusing on what happened in the life of the father-in-law. Jethro. So in verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done. Underline that, would you? Or at least underscore it in your heart and mind. He told his family everything God had done on their behalf. In fact, he included not only the good things, but he also talked about all the hardships they met along the way. 
But he concluded his story by saying that the Lord saved us out of every situation. Whether it was no water or bitter water at Mara, no water in the wilderness, water from a rock at Rephidim, the need for meat in the wilderness of sin, and God gave them manna and quail, fed them from heaven above. Whatever the hardship, whatever the difficulty, whether it was crossing the Red Sea and an army coming right on their heels, God saved them. And that was in their story. You'll notice in verse 9, the word rescue is used. And in verse 10, the word rescue is used again. In verse 8, it's the word save. Do you have a rescue story? that you share with other people about how God delivered you? I'm not talking so much about a physical deliverance, although that may be part of it, but I'm talking about a salvation story. Do you have a story that you can share with others where you tell them everything God has done for you? Oh, there have been hardships along the way, but God has saved you. He's forgiven you of your sin. He's broken the bondage and slavery of the devil in your life and heart. He's delivered you. Do you have a rescue story and do you freely tell it with others? Especially sharing it with your own family. That's what, that's what Moses is doing. If there's one word that I think capsulizes the character of Moses at this point, it's the word faithful. Moses is faithful. You think about it, he started off a little bit shaky, right? Wasn't really eager to follow God. But slowly he believed. Slowly he began to grow. And now Moses is a great man of faith. Hebrews says he was faithful in all his house as a servant. I think it's Hebrews 3 or Hebrews 5. In Hebrews 11, by faith Moses esteemed the riches of Christ the, as greater honor or esteemed the the reproach of Christ is greater honor than the riches of Egypt. By faith, he went back to Egypt to deliver the people. By faith, he led them through the Red Sea. Moses is a man of faith. And he's quick to tell God's story. Do you have a story of deliverance to tell? What story would you tell someone today about what God is doing in your life right now? I think some of us have this story. Well, God saved me years ago, but man, now life is a mess. End of story. That's a great evangelistic tool. <laughs> Share that with the lost, and they'll just come crawling to the Savior. They'll say, I can't wait to be like you. Some of us have a story where we emphasize the negative, the difficult times. And that's really sad. But you'll notice in verse 8, there is both the difficult, the hardships, but the wonderful victories, the deliverance that God has wrought. Charles Spurgeon said that we have a tendency to only remember the bad times and not the good times. He said it's like we engrave our problems in marble, but we write the blessings of God in the sand. And we need to reverse that. If you're a glass-half-empty type of person, my friend, you don't realize the sovereign God who fills the glass. And you need to, be, need to become a glass-half-full 
and growing type of person. Oh, acknowledge the realities of the difficulties of serving Christ, but share your redemption story. Oh, you're not redeemed? Get a story. Get a life. Turn from your sin and find deliverance in Christ. He'd love to save you and give you something worth talking about. So verse 9 says, Jethro was delighted to hear all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10, he praised the Lord who rescued the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11, Jethro said, the Lord is greater than all the other gods. Verse 12, Jethro sacrificed to the Lord in the presence of the Lord. What an effect the story of Moses had on the heart of his father-in-law. I don't know if Jethro was saved before this situation. I'm convinced Jethro is saved now. Not only because of these statements, he praised the Lord he said God is greater than all other gods. He sacrificed to the Lord. But in the later account, in the rest of this chapter, you'll see that Jethro has a wonderful sensitivity to the will of God for the future. And that's the mark of a real child of God. Moses brought his pagan father-in-law to faith in Jesus Christ, in the coming Messiah, and in the goodness of Yahweh. Your story will have tremendous effect when you share it with people that are closest to you. So here's Moses, theocentric, faithful to the word of God, loving his family, quick to recount everything that's happened. This must have been a day off. Maybe it was their Sabbath day. It was a time when they just uh, were able to rest a little and share and fellowship. By the way, Moses could offer these sacrifices because there was no priesthood yet. And so the elders were the ones who would be involved, and the chiefs were the ones involved in offering the sacrifices. But now comes the second half of the chapter, and it starts with verse 13. The next day, Moses had to go back to work. And he took his seat to serve as judge for the people of God. And they stood around Moses from morning till evening. From dawn till dusk. Man, I can identify with that. <laughs> you say, what do you mean? I've stood in the Secretary of State line <laughs> almost that long. And I know what it's like. Here you have, in the second half of this chapter, the whole discussion of how the community stayed together how it was organized, how it functioned as a nation two million strong. And, and this is how it works. Moses listens to everyone's complaint. No wonder the line was so long. And so what you have in the second part of this chapter, we'll just call this the reconstructing of the ministry of Moses. Reconstructuring the ministry, the organization, the life. Or maybe you want to call it lessons for leadership because Jethro, the chief of Midian, older than his son-in-law, is about to give him some wise counsel. 
Verse 14, when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing? Why do you alone sit and judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said, well, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me. And I decide between the parties and I inform them of God's decrees and laws. And Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is insane. This is not good. This doesn't make any sense. You're going to kill yourself and frustrate the people. Verse 18. You and these people that uh, come to you, you'll only wear yourselves out. This work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. And the word strain is used in verse 23. Moses, this is a load that one man was never intended to bear. You cannot do this without killing yourself. Think of it, Moses. You're taxing your brain. You're troubling your soul. You're trying the patience of the people. You're wearing them out. You're depleting your resources. You're delaying justice. Things aren't getting done. And the people are so frustrated. They are not satisfied. That's implied in verse 23. They're not satisfied with the way things are. In fact, if you were to go to Numbers 11, you would find out that Moses wasn't very satisfied with the burden that he was carrying. This is revealed earlier probably during the time that the manna came down from heaven, but it still is extended to this situation. In Numbers 11, 11, he says to the Lord, Why have you brought trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive them? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised them? I could just hear that complaint. Have you ever done that before? These are my kids. Uh, why should I be responsible for them? And Moses is wearing himself out. And it's time to re-engineer the organization. It's trying time to restructure. And frankly, my friend, you need times like this in your life as well. It's time to reorganize. You've been taking on too much. The load is too great. And the good things are going to be dropped. And you'll handle so much that you'll wear out. And you'll turn into a complainer just like the people that come to see you. And they won't be satisfied. You won't get your work done right. And the main calling that I've given you is not going to be fulfilled. Moses, it's time to re-engineer the organization. And so he gives him several commands to restructure. And here's the first one. Evaluate the problem. Evaluate or analyze the situation. Now, Jethro's done that for us. You're one man and too many people are coming to you. The scripture says in verse 13 that Moses took his seat and the people stood. That is technical language. Semitic judicial language to speak about the judge who sits and the litigant who stands. Moses was, de was dealing with small problems, but large ones as well. 
and apparently he felt he was the only one who could do it. You might work for a boss that has a rough time delegating things to you, and it frustrates you. You may be the boss who thinks like he has to do it all. If you want it done right, you've got to do it yourself, right? And you just are doing way too much. You don't trust God and you don't trust others. The problem is, if this keeps up, Moses, you're going to destroy yourself. Verse 18, you'll wear yourself out. This load is way too heavy. It's, good, it's a good load, but it's too heavy for one man. If a ship is overloaded with gold, it will still sink. As if it's overloaded with garbage. It's not the quality of the load, it's the amount. And so Jethro says, let's evaluate the problem. And the first thing he does is emphasize the top priority. Moses, you still have to be the mediator between you and the people. Verse 19, listen now to me and I will give you some advice. Here's my counsel. Now, I've heard people say that Jethro's counsel was sinful and Moses sinned in listening to it. I don't see anything like that in Scripture at all. And this is the way he gives the counsel. He says, God be with you. If this is God's will, listen to what I have to say. Number one, you must be the people's representative. We've evaluated the problem. You are still the mediator. You're still the key representative between Israel and God. That's your top priority. That's your calling. You were called to deliver the people of God, and you were called to lead them. Now stay close to God. Don't give up your calling and your position before God to get involved in a hundred lesser things. They're urgent, they're important, but other people can do them. So you need to make sure that your top priority is still your top priority. F.B. Meyer put it this way, we touch men most when we most touch God. The time we have with people will be more effective if we have more effective time with God. How can I be a representative for God if I don't spend time in his presence? Moses, this is priority number one. And you know what your top priorities ought to be? Look ahead to the day of judgment when you stand before Jesus Christ and you hear him say, well done. Or he says to you, what have you done? What do you want him to say to you? My, I've never seen a person make money like you did. You were the best money maker in the entire world. Is that what you want to hear him say? Money won't mean a thing then. But to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Wow, that's heaven. To hear those words is heaven. So your first and top priority, and this just isn't for preachers. This is for every child of God. Your first priority is to love God to spend time in his presence, to serve him, to follow him, to articulate his story in your life and give him the glory. 
Moses, that's what you need to focus in on. And then you need to communicate God's truth, Moses. Teach, verse 20, teach your people the decrees and the laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. Teach and show. You're not only telling them, you're demonstrating. You're communicating and demonstrating. Teach and show. The biggest reason why kids growing up in a Christian home do not follow the faith of their parents is because their parents might have believed it and might have taught it, but they didn't demonstrate it Monday through Saturday. I'm not saying if you do that, your kids are guaranteed to come out good. But I'm saying without that, they're almost guaranteed to leave the faith. You're frustrating them. You're putting before them an inconsistent example. Moses teach and show. And by the way, the word decree is, if I understand it correctly, or the word law is the word Torah, which originally meant signpost. It was a signpost to tell you you're on the right road. A law then keeps you on the right path. A law is not trying to restrict you, either restrict your freedom or to minimize your joy. The law is to keep you on the right path of life. That's what the Torah is. And that word then is expanded to cover all the first five books of Moses, the Torah, the law of God. So communicate and demonstrate. And then the last thing to restructure your ministry, Moses, you need to delegate. You can't do this alone. So this is what I want you to do, Moses, verse 21. Select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials and judges. And the word leaders is used in verse 24. And they will be leaders and officials and judges over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Every 10 people will have one person they can go to. That's going to make the lines a lot shorter. And they can handle the easier things, and if there's some dispute they can't handle, it'll go up the line to the next judge who's over the 50 or over the 100 or over the thousands. And if they can't handle it, then that dispute can come to you, Moses. And this is how things can be efficiently fulfilled and and accomplished. Brian Tracy, who does a lot of teaching in the realm of reorganizing businesses, has said, if you're going to re-engineer a business and simplify the process, you've got to get rid of a lot of stuff. And the way you get rid of a lot of stuff is, number one, eliminate what doesn't need to be done or is ineffective. And number two, delegate what can be done better by others. And the truth of the matter is, there are some people who can do parts of your job far better than you can. Because you cannot do it all. Sometimes God's workers make the mistake of putting it all on their own shoulders. Work which other people could do. Work that they could do far better. And the wisdom of God is that the body of Christ needs to function, not just one arm and not just one leg. So delegate, he says. Now I want you to delegate to the right people. They need to be capable. 
They have the skill set to do it. This is very apropos because we are coming to our annual meeting when we evaluate how things are going, when we talk about reorganization, when we talk about new leaders. And new leaders need to be, number one, capable of leading. Novel concept. <laughs> but the church is often so ignorant, they put people into positions of leadership because they're nice guys. They're great gals. Oh, I really like Fred. Let's make him an elder. He hasn't been an elder. Let's give him a chance. Well, he's our age. Let's get together a voting block and we'll put Fred in. We've got to make sure that our voice is heard or the younger people are doing the same thing, you know, so someone doesn't take over. Politics are horrible. Church politics are an abomination. So leaders should be gifted to lead. That should be the first question. Are the people that you're putting forth gifted to lead? We've got some great people who are great servants, who are wonderful people in the ministry of South. We couldn't do work effectively without them, who don't have the gift of leadership and would hate to lead. Capable, God-fearing, they put God above everything else in his word. They're trustworthy, reliable, faithful, men of integrity, and they hate dishonest gain. That is, they're not going to cut corners to build their own kingdom. They're not going to cut corners or use deceit to their own financial advantage. Make these people leaders, and you will lighten your load. Verse 22. Did you see that phrase? They will lighten your load. That's an expression that means to take cargo off a ship. There was, years ago, a, a plimsoil line that was actually painted on ships. It was invented by some English guy by the name of plimsoil. And basically, it was calculating how much cargo a ship could take. And they would paint a line on that ship's hull. And then if the cargo was too heavy, the line would go underwater, which meant the ship was overloaded. And they would have to take cargo out until the plimsoil line came back above water. And that's what this is saying. Some of us have added so many things to our life. Isn't technology wonderful? Doesn't technology drive you up a wall? Doesn't it sometimes not benefit your life, but make it more difficult? Yeah, there's a lot of good things in our life that we need to get rid of. And I'm not saying throw away your iPhone. I'm saying what you need to do is prioritize and get rid of things you can and delegate other things that you can and focus on the things you must do. That's what he's saying. And let the ship rise in the water as the load is lightened. And get this, verse 24. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said to do. <laughs> Moses did, told his father-in-law everything God had done. That was faithfulness. Now Moses is doing everything his father-in-law said to do. That's humility. I mean, for a young guy to listen to his father-in-law, that's humility. And Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. Numbers chapter three and verse, chapter 12 and verse 3. You ever seen that verse? <laughs> it's kind of a funny verse because who wrote Numbers? 
Yeah, Moses. But when Jesus came, he was far more meek than Moses. Meekness is strength under control. It's humility. It's knowing when you're wrong and giving in to the right. And that's exactly what Moses did. And he typifies what a real believer ought to be like, faithful and humble. So here's the church in the wilderness doing what the church in the present 21st century ought to do. Be theocentric. Tell God's story. Have a story of rescuing grace, of God's mighty deeds in your life, and tell everything that he has done. And structure your life, God willing, around a pattern that diversifies the load, that shares the load with God-gifted people that he's brought into the church so that the work of ministry is done not by one or even by three, but by 1,500 people. And that's what should be happening at South. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the many things that are happening in our midst, things that we can give you praise for. And we pray, Lord, that we will be sensitive to those areas where we need to reorganize, where we need to re-engineer. Help us learn to evaluate in such a way that we can cut off the dead branches. We can eliminate things we used to put a lot of time and energy and resources in that no longer accomplish the ministry. And help us, Lord, then to invest in people, in training and encouraging them to be leaders at any level to go out and do the work of ministry that you've called them to do. Lord, bless us as a church that we might enjoy your blessing as we walk in humble obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.